You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. We're about to listen to George Magnus, who is the Oxford University China Center Research Associate. We're going to be talking to him about China. We're going to take on the full kit and caboodle in terms of trade policy, domestic economy, in terms of export-led economy. It'll be a very exciting discussion with him. I'm really looking forward to what he has to tell us about the priorities inside of China and also the priorities with regard to China in the West. It should be a great interview. Hope you enjoy. George Magnus, uh, good to talk to you. Uh, you are the research associate at the China Center at Oxford University, so you know a lot about China. And I've, I've talked to you many times in the past. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the Real Vision platform, especially because today is a day where stock markets are up. China is one leading the charge in the aftermath of uh, J- the July 4th celebration here in the U.S. right before markets open. And all seems to be well. Uh, is all well with China and everything that you're seeing? Well, um, good to talk to you, Ed. I, I suppose it's all relative. I mean, uh, you know, compared with where China was just a few months ago, um, yeah, I mean, it, it does look good. I mean, the stock market is uh, being one of the top performers this year. Um, um, had a great day today, as you said. And um, yeah, I mean, I suppose in many ways, there are two things just to kind of kick off our discussion, really. I mean, the first is that, I mean, the economy is coming back, you know, reasonably well. I mean, not uniformly or ubiquitously well, but um, production is up to, you know, beyond levels that we had in Chinese New Year in January. Uh, demand is recovering not quite as rapidly, but is not doing too badly. Service industries, which were particularly badly hit, travel, tourism, recreation, culture, these kinds of things. I think this is all very familiar now. Um, <clears throat> some of that is coming back a bit. Uh, but of course, the People's Bank of China has also been uh, you know, quite generous in terms of liquidity provision. Been a couple of problems in smaller banks, which uh, they've quickly tried to uh, stifle and muffle um, quite successfully. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think the stock market, uh, to the extent that it means anything in China uh, relative to the economy uh, is just basically telling us that retail is getting involved again. Um, certainly, you know, the government and the sort of the main propaganda or news outlets, uh, which of course are state controlled, are um, kind of talking up equity markets in China a little bit. So this has got a little bit of a kind of a, a ring from 2014-15 as well. Uh, so yeah, for the time being, it looks like it's going okay. The, the, you know, uh, there are a lot of threads in, in what you just said, but the interesting bit I found, the most interesting bit was when you talked about uh, the production at levels higher than January, but also at the same time, um, actual demand not quite there yet. So it sounds like they're producing for the future. And two things come to mind. One is, is that sustainable? And then the second is, how much of that is due to domestic uh, demand versus external demand in terms of what they're thinking about going forward? Yeah, I mean, the the foreign side of this is still pretty important. I mean, I think we're kind of, we're acclimatized now to, to the fact that China is no longer, you know, an export-led economy in the way that it was in the 2000s, right? So current account is pretty small. Uh, in fact, first quarter of this year, actually, they ran small deficit, Um because exports were particularly badly hit. But even though China's not an export-led economy, the foreign trade side of of what goes on in China is still quite important, uh, particularly for the southeastern and eastern provinces. Um, And um, after what was a pretty torrid uh, first quarter, 
it looks like um, with Western demand for, you know, medical equipment and masks and ventilators and pharmaceuticals and medicines and goodness knows what else, it looks like the Chinese producers have been doing pretty well. So there has been a bit of a kind of a, a, a comeback a little bit on the export side. But the main thing really is, is the domestic side, which is, which is the production side, which is doing well. But um, to reinforce the point, uh, which you asked me, really, um, there is this dichotomy, really, between obviously, you know, supply and demand. So the production side of the economy seems to be going like um, gangbusters. The demand side, not quite so great. So that could be uh, building up an inventory problem, you know, later this year. It's quite possible. Um, a lot of the retail and uh, kind of culture, recreation side of the economy still really isn't firing that well. People still a little bit nervous, even though, I mean, there is, you know, clusters, outbreaks of COVID have come back. Um, they're, um, they're pretty much in kind of in control of it, I should say. I mean, uh, but people are, are anxious. I mean, their behavior right. isn't really that normal. So um, I think that this, this is potentially kind of an issue. And employment is uh, something which I think we should all keep our eyes on in China. I mean, everywhere, but in China as well. Um, so every single state council and um, national reform development commission meeting and all the kind of main state agencies, ever since the beginning of 2019, every single meeting is dominated by jobs. And uh, the government has been absolutely adamant um, this year, including at the delayed National People's Congress in May, that employment was the top, top priority. Remember, as a lot of migrant workers were laid off or uh, told, you know, not to come back to work. Many of those have now, uh, by June, July, have gone back, but still perhaps up to about 15 or 20 percent of migrant workers still not back on the job, as it were. Um, every kind of summer, nine and a half million graduates uh, come through the university kind of pipeline, um, and they have the same issues that obviously a lot of Western countries do about Will they find, you know, sufficiently well-paid jobs that meet their aspirations? You know, will they end up working in the gig economy, underselling themselves and so on? Uh, these things are really big issues for China, as you can imagine, because, they, you know, the labor market works in a rather kind of different way. So a lot of Chinese economists think it might take two years, if they're lucky, it might take two years for the employment of the labor market to basically recover its poise. But of course, in the next two years, my view is that China's economy is just going to continue to slow down. So I think this problem gets worse rather than better. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. You know, hanging over all of that, actually, as you say that, is um, the two things, uh, the virus, obviously, uh, and the political situation. I don't know which one's more important, which one we should go into first. But the sort of overall thought I had as you were talking about the economy and you were talking about tourism and a bunch of other things, I thought to myself, you know, China is a really big country. And just like the United States, really, to a certain degree, they can create a, a, a moat to themselves. And we're sort of, I feel like, at a transitional point in terms of where China is, in terms of its uh, economic model and how it's being perceived outside as a result of the virus. Um, what are your thoughts on those two issues in terms of which one is more important going forward, the political side or the viral side in terms of driving those outcomes like the ones about the the employment issue that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I suspect the, I mean, the pandemic consequences. I mean, I, I don't really see these as, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to understate them at all, but I don't see them as basically being permanent um, up, up to a point, right? So I think that, um, you know, before long, uh, hopefully before long, you know, either the virus is going to become a nuisance rather than something that we all, you know, fear and, and don't go out because of or whatever. Um, it'll become awkward, it'll become a nuisance. Maybe there'll be a vaccine in a year or 18 months, two years. 
So I, <clears throat> I don't see these as being rather uh, is kind of long lasting. But there are other consequences of the pandemic, which I think could have much more durable consequences. So one of the things, as I think probably everybody knows, you know, in Washington, they call it decoupling. In Beijing, they call it self-reliance. It's really kind of opposite sides of the same coin. And um, the consequences of the pandemic, I mean, maybe it was just really to accelerate something that was going on anyway. Right. Uh, but I think that, um, that these, these things are really difficult to predict. Um, but I think um, whilst I, I, I don't really anticipate at this juncture that there'll be a complete seizure in terms of commercial relations between the United States and China or the Western world and China, um, I mean, pending, you know, ab outright conflicts, because um, I think that that sort of interdependence is still quite at a very, very high level. But I think that a lot of companies must be rethinking their future strategies. And I think, you know, looking at the kind of survey evidence that we get from like the American Chamber of Commerce or the EU Chamber of Commerce in China um, and what companies are basically saying, maybe not all companies, because actually if you run a business in China and you want to sell to the rising middle class over the next 25 years, then... You know, you have to be there. And I don't think those companies are going to quit or leave. Uh, but um, I think a lot of companies basically that are uh, at the middle of these kind of China centric supply chains will be looking at alternatives, maybe not to leave China, but to diversify, to have more than sole source suppliers. Right. So maybe they go to Japan or to Korea or to uh, Malaysia, or in the case of U.S. companies, they could uh, relocate some of their supply chains back to Mexico. So we we kind of see this really in the in the survey evidence that there's a sort of a statistically significant, although by no means you know overwhelming majority at all, but a statistically significant number of or percentage of companies, if they're not doing this already, they're looking at doing this in the next kind of five to ten years. So. I, I do think, you know, that that will be permanently because, you know, companies won't make these decisions for a, for six months. It'll be like for, uh, you know, the foreseeable future. Right. So that kind of thing, I think, will will affect China. I think the more hostile commercial environment affecting trade, investment and lending. Um, these things, I think, also very difficult to quantify, but I think they will also impinge on China. Um, particularly if it should become, uh, you know, if the United States in particular, I would say, should actually want to leverage its financial clout over China, either with respect to companies that are um, uh, facilitating the suppression in Xinjiang province, or because of the legislation that's going through the Congress over Hong Kong, I mean, if financial sanctions were uh, to apply to individuals or banks, I mean, that's taking the level of confrontation up to a new level, I think. Uh, so these kinds of things, I think, are more important, really. It's the kind of the, the consequences of the political consequences of the pandemic rather than the, um, you know, specific uh, measurable things that we, me we measure in economics quarter to quarter. Right. And, you know, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense, putting the two together and the, uh, with the pandemic as the accelerant. I, you know, I saw an astonishing piece uh, this weekend uh, in the Sunday Times. I don't know if you saw that. It was talking about uh, the virus in Wuhan province and uh, the origin. And there was some slight overtones of, uh, you know, Chinese media suppression of what's really going on, et cetera. I thought it was somewhat sensationalistic and it's somewhat emblematic of the times that we're living in, in terms of the politicization of the relationship between the West on the one hand and China on the other hand. And as you were talking, I was thinking about this in terms of Donald Trump, uh, the president, you were talking about uh, the weaponization of the U.S. dollar in certain uh, through the banking system, et cetera. Now, Donald Trump's on his back foot domestically, but uh, were he to understand that he only has a few months left uh, until he's out of office, that could mean that he might need to accelerate 
uh, his movements against China. Do you think that that is a potential threat? Uh, those uh, those activities that you were talking about, weaponizing the 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 dollar and the and the banking system, potentially uh, as a political sort of salvo of uh, at the end of uh, a, a a Donald Trump presidency. Yeah, I well, I think there. Are- couple of things about this. I mean, the first is, uh, particularly following, you know, John Bolton's revelations in his book, um, I don't really know what to think about. Maybe we just don't know what to think that President Trump might do next anyway. Um, And whether he, you know, basically has a secret admiration for Xi Jinping or uh, whether, you know, current political circumstances demand that he kind of ups the ante. Uh, You know, I think it's quite difficult to predict. I think they, though, having said that, um, that whatever happens probably after November, um, the, the basic thrust of American policy towards China probably not going to change very much. Maybe stylistically it'll change. Maybe uh, it could change if, if the presidency changed. Maybe the you know approach to allies would be different. But I think the threat of uh, weaponizing capital uh, I think is probably going to remain. I mean, whether it actually comes to that or not is hard to say because from a, if you just wanted to reason this, you know, from the point of view of logic and in whose interests would it be, you know, to uh, impose kind of uh, Magnitsky type of sanctions against Chinese individuals or Chinese banks. <clears throat> I mean, it's different when you do it with, you know, if it was ever you know, an issue I can remember in the old Soviet Union and certainly with Russia today, it's not an issue because Russia is simply just not, you know, a big enough economic power. It doesn't really matter that much, uh, relatively speaking. But China is. And so um, the question is, you know, who would be the winner? Who would be the loser? I mean, probably everybody would lose because if you started to sanction banks in Hong Kong, for example, uh, given their or restrict their access to U.S. dollars or for exchanging U.S. dollars for Hong Kong dollars or what have you. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that could be restricted to just Chinese institutions. I think it would have dynamic financial market consequences in which American banks and other foreign banks would become drawn in as well. So it's difficult to tell how, you know, where would that end? And, you know, does anybody really want to it, it, it's really it's the sort of the nuclear button in finance, isn't it, to do that? Um, so, is it something that has appeal from a political point of view? Absolutely, uh, because that would really make um, that that would that would hurt China in a way in which a few tariffs, you know, can be basically brushed off as being, you know, political peak, but really nothing that's really going to sort of destabilize the Chinese economy. But finance uh, or restricting access to U.S. dollars would have a dramatic effect. And how much of that do you think uh, this whole concept of potentially hurting China is based upon human rights in areas like the Uyghurs and the and uh, Hong Kong, and how much of it is a competitive situation where the United States has now become a uh, 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 it's become obvious that China is a player on the, the global stage and, and the U.S. is worried. Yeah, well, um, these two things have become, I think, um, not necessarily constructively conflated, right? So the the idea about linking sanctions um, against China uh, or penalties to human rights uh, and or to the national security law in Hong Kong of course, and Congress has basically, you know, stepped up to take the lead in terms of legislating in both cases, subject to reviews and presidential approval and so on. Um, so um, I think, you know, we should look at that, you know, in one kind of corner, as it were, in the blue corner on its own. I don't think that it's a good idea. I mean, my view is that it's not a good idea for the United States or anybody else to basically look at sanctions in, uh, you know, from the same point of view, from a commercial point of view, you know, because we might not like the idea that Huawei is a world leader in, you know, 5G telecommunications infrastructure, we should basically redouble our efforts to make sure yeah. we, you know, we're good at that too, if not better, um, rather than use sanctions, because I think that would be 
Uh, I mean, it's not a good message for us, uh, you know, internally, let alone externally, um, and actually doesn't improve our relative standing or our comparative advantage. So I think we, um, we, ha we have to do both, you know, I, mean, I think we have to be very uh, conscious of things that we think are important, you know, from our point of view of values, standards, beliefs, governance uh, criteria and so on, um, and act accordingly. And I think where where we feel that you know unfair advantage uh, is being uh, exploited by Chinese companies, I think we have a right to you know combat that in some way, or certainly to demand reciprocity um, with China. Though so, you know if you do this, we'll do this, and so on. But actually, none of that should obfuscate uh, from serious attempts that we must make. I think to bring our technology and educational systems and um, economic systems, you know, up to scratch and to be able to make sure that we can perform top of our ability. Well, you know, the, la the latest that I heard in terms of the Huawei uh, uh, fiasco, if you will, is the UK is looking to strip Huawei out of UK networks uh, by the end of the year. I think this is what I'm understanding with regard to uh, the UK government's plans going forward. What's the latest in, in the UK about Huawei? How much of it is a Five Eyes-driven uh, policy? How much of it is a US-driven policy? Well, um, whilst it was just a US-driven policy, um, the British government under Prime Minister Boris Johnson, I mean, they actually took a decision to basically open up the telecommunications or the 5G rollout to, at least in part, to Huawei. Um, I mean, they imposed a kind of a cap on it. I mean, I don't really get the kind of the technical bits of this uh, greatly, but it was to it was limited involvement is the way they put it up to about a third. Um, and then, you know, other companies, the rest and so on. Um, but this is a more recent shift. I mean, we are expecting a decision on this quite soon. And uh, today, in fact, uh, one of the former heads of um, MI6, uh, intelligence agency, uh, Sir John Sawyers uh, basically wrote a kind of a, an opinion piece in the Financial Times, essentially anticipating this reversal of policy um, and arguing why um, it's justified. I mean, he previously, having been um, a supporter of the government's policy, but so, I mean, to be honest, we can argue now about whether the intelligence community in this in the United Kingdom was, you know, or leading members of it were right or wrong to basically think that so much has changed in China in the last six months. I mean, my view is nothing much has changed. It might have gotten worse, but, it, you know, we knew what it was like before. Um, but uh, be that as it may, I mean, there clearly is a shift going on, which I think is a product, really, of not, not specifically. I mean, I'm sure that behind the scenes, U.S. officials have been badgering their U.K. counterparts to, you know, toe the line, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think what's really happened is a kind of a deeper appreciation on the part of the British government and by its own um, lawmakers in uh, the British Parliament, um, with, who are almost, you know, by a large majority in favour of a tougher uh, line on China now. But I mean, it's been conditioned really by the whole pandemic experience, WHO experience, um, you know, Hong Kong so, yeah, it's, it's a shift of it's a big shift of view in the United Kingdom. Right. And so it does seem like when you talk about the conflation between human rights, Hong Kong and uh, commercial interests, this is definitely coming into play. The pandemic has accelerated sort of an anti-China thinking in the U.S., U.K., but also five eyes. So I would say Canada, New Zealand, Australia. My question is, especially when the only competitors to Huawei that I understand are in Scandinavia, um, what happens to the rest of the world, the rest of the world that's aligned with the United States, like Germany, uh, you know, Finland, Nokia and, and Ericsson are the two companies in particular who are Huawei's competitors in 5G. Do you see the EU moving in the same direction or is this something that is specific to the Anglo-American world? No, it's, well, it's slightly more complicated in the EU. But again, there has been, you know, the ground is shifting uh, slowly. So, you know, earlier this year, uh, well, actually it was last year, actually, I think the EU 
um, radically. I mean, they did like a 180-degree shift from, because uh, there's an EU-China dialogue which takes place. It's not quite at the level that the US-China dialogue used to be, um, but it, it, nevertheless, it happens. And, you know, in 2018, they still talked about China as a strategic partner. Since last year, certainly they talk about China as a systemic rival. Um, the new president of the EU Commission and other officials of the EU Commission, plus leading officials in Germany and in France in particular, have voiced uh, great scepticism uh, within the last you know, two or three months about um, <clears throat> China's involvement in local technology companies, uh, in you know, not playing by the rules, um, in um, uh, making a mockery of you know, the kind of the... Uh, the prevailing legislation or, you know, agreements governing Hong Kong and so on. So um, it's, it's, it's harder, of course, you know, in the EU, because you have to get 27 countries kind of lined up in, behind a policy. But if the French and the Germans and the Brussels administration basically have kind of bitten the bullet on this, which it looks to be that it is moving that way. I mean, Germany is still... I think somewhat ambivalent because there's a big corporate lobby there. There is, there is change going on. I think um, so. I, I would think that um, you know. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether this is going to happen or not. But my 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 view would be that if you had a U.S. administration after November, which was, shall we say, more collegiate and inclusive as regarding you know allies and alliances, I think um, I think it would do. Uh, a lot to turn, you know, EU members, you know, to tilt them in the way that they seem to be shifting already. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and as you were saying that one thing that occurred to me is when you think about Germany in particular, you think about Germany's turn toward China uh, in terms of an export living, uh, uh, demand driven type of, of uh, system after the European debt crisis. That obviously is influencing the German uh, corporates. Uh, if you say analogously, China has the same sort of thinking in terms of we used to be export driven. Now we have to look at away from the West. Potentially, they could still be somewhat export driven and, you know, corral their resources in the, the Asia Pacific region. You know, get people, uh, countries on side with China, create a larger uh, Chinese sphere of influence, if you will, from an economic perspective. W is there any sort of talk about that happening uh, with China deepening its uh, relationship, the Belt and Road type of thing within Asia itself? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, I think <clears throat> very much so. Um, and I think that um, well, since you mentioned the Belt and Road, obviously, you know, the Belt and Road, uh, I mean, it's not quite living up. I'm not surprised by this, but I mean, it's not quite living up to the hype uh, that we heard a lot of, you know, in 2016 to 18. Um, but, you know, it's a signature part of President Xi Jinping's foreign policy. Um, it's, it's not as coherently top-down thought out as I think some people like to think. But, you know, it fulfills a number of different purposes for China. It protects, it's designed to protect, you know, supply routes to China uh, you know, they're building out what the Indians call the string of pearls around the Indian Ocean of ports and naval facilities uh, to protect oil shipment routes, you know, through the Malacca Straits and up to uh, the coastal provinces of China. Um, it uh, fulfills a function in terms of exporting a little, you know, overcapacity of steel and other heavy industry products from China. It, uh, it's a very useful way, at least this is what the Chinese think, to basically uh, build infrastructure in Africa, Asia, you know, parts of Latin America, Eastern Europe, and then basically use that as a platform to sell Chinese products and market Chinese brands. So, 
you know, when we were talking before about Huawei and about whether the five eyes or Europe and so on would kind of uh, go along with it. But uh, whatever we, quote, we in the West decide to do with Chinese technology companies, obviously there's a whole third world or, you know, emerging world out there, which, um, you know, is open season for basically Chinese companies and for American and European, Japanese, Korean companies to compete over. So for the Chinese, I think um, the, the Belt and Road is uh, including Asia is um, uh, very, very important in terms of economic reach uh, in the future. Uh, I think in, in Asia, it's quite it's kind of interesting, really, because I think Asia represents a very kind of curious kind of mixture of opportunities and risks for China because most Asian countries, even, you know, from Japan all the way down to Australia, actually, um, I mean, they see obviously their economic interests as having been firmly kind of rooted in Chinese economic emergence and eruption and so on. Um, okay, we don't really know how rapidly that will or how continuously that will go on in the future because there may be roadblocks to growth and there may be you know constraints on chinese economy in the future that we didn't have before but be that as it may china certainly is seen as being sort of integral to the economic um, outlook um, but from a political and security point of view Mostly, I would say, still, um, they, you know, Asian countries look to the United States as being their, uh, I was going to say savior, I don't really mean savior, but as their backstop. It's basically right. United States security is still the kind of default. Um, now, that it could change, obviously. Uh, nothing is necessarily forever. But this conflicted situation, which a lot of Asian countries find themselves in, I think is... It's quite awkward. I don't think it's like that maybe for the Australians or the Japanese or the Indians anymore. Um, but for smaller Asian countries, ASEAN countries and so on, it's difficult, right? I mean, you have to make this kind of trade-off. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of hopeful. I'm, I'm, I say hopeful not with any kind of insider knowledge about it, but I was just reading you know, recently about a change of heart in terms of Indonesia, uh, where... Um, there's been a kind of a, a shift in government policy to be more welcoming to companies that want to diversify out of China or away from China and uh, establish. I mean, Malaysia has been a beneficiary, for example, but Indonesia so far has not been as you know in the forefront, but it looks like it wants to kind of join that fold. So, yes, of course, Asia is China's backyard from an economic point of view, but it remains to be seen, actually, how, uh, how open that backyard will be. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, uh, immediately I think about the Chinese domestic economy uh, from there. You know, if uh, it's not immediately obvious that they're going to benefit from a, a larger um, Asia-Pacific type of uh, strategy, then obviously it's the domestic side. And you were talking about the domestic side. I think that the thing that comes to mind for me is you were talking about a continued slowing of the domestic economy. And I want to get into that. What is it that is causing the slowing? How much is debt, especially private debt, a part of that? And uh, what are the nuances in that? I mean, I suppose all of our kind of economic kind of discussion actually should basically absent 2020 and 2021, which is, I mean, these numbers are going to be all over the place, right? right. So, you know, we've had, you know, a big crunch in Chinese growth in the first half of this year. Probably, I mean, next in 2021, I mean, don't be surprised if you saw a double-digit GDP again, you know, but if you average it out, what's happened between 2020, 2021, most probably, uh, you know, the number will end up with something that's about 6%, which is where the growth target probably would have been set had they done that in May. Um, uh, but they abandoned the target for this year, uh, as most people know, because of the inevitability of um, uh, not compensating for uh, for the effects of COVID and so on. So the feeling that I have, certainly, you know, looking at China over the next kind of five years, 10 years or so, is a number of kind of headwinds, which I've, um, I've detailed in the book that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago, which was came out in paperback last year as well, red flags, which is, first of all, the debt situation, right? So we know from Rogoff and Reinhardt and, you know, numerous other 
economists that have waxed about this since 2007-2008. You know, debt is uh, a constraint. At the very least, debt is a constraint on growth over the medium term. So um, that, that's the kind of place where I start, really. And I think that um, notwithstanding the fact that between 2017 and 2019, China did take, um, and you know, it would be churlish not to, you know, give them a kind of a round of applause for this, but they did uh, take quite seriously the idea of trying to reduce egregious forms of risk-taking in the financial sector, which had been rampant um, in previous uh, few years. So that brought down the pace of credit creation and the growth of debt quite significantly. The shadow banking sector, for example, uh, shrunk by about 20 percentage points of GDP between about 2017 and 2019. Uh, part of that was risk being brought back on balance sheet, but mm. part of it was just risk being cut out altogether. So there were two and a half years, roughly, <clears throat> of um, relative stabilization of debt to GDP. But since the end of last year, and certainly during the first half of 2020, it's kind of gone, uh, if it's not a moonshot, then it's, it's, it's risen again quite rapidly. So if you look at the broadest measures of aggregate financing, as they call it in China, um, it, to May, uh, the rate of growth over the last six months was about 14% per annum. Over the last six months, about 18% per annum. So now you're talking about credit growing at you know high double digit number again and gdp growing at low single digit so obviously the debt ratios are going to get worse the funding uh, problems that a lot of smaller banks there are about 4000 small banks in china uh, many of which um, have quite seriously stretched uh, funding situations very reliant on overnight funding short term funding about six or seven banks had to be rescued or taken over last year. This year, we've had at least four banks that have had a run uh, on their deposits, which have had to be stabilized by local authorities. Um, so, yeah, I think the financial system is still vulnerable, although not necessarily, you know, Lehman inclined because no major banks are going to be allowed to go bust. Um, and... Um, it will take a, a, a long time, I think, for, for China to get control over indebtedness. And I think if it doesn't, then uh, it's going to retard um, the rebalancing of the economy and it will continue to lean on uh, growth in a, in a very, very material way. Right. It's not, it's not the only constraint, but it's one of the most urgent ones, yeah. You know, as you were saying that, I just thought about uh, the Minsky moment, because I think that you're uh, very much responsible for uh, making that term uh, a, a catchphrase for the Lehman crisis. And um, as you were saying, you were talking about Lehman, I was thinking to myself about contingent liabilities. That is, is, is that, you know, one of the reasons that Lehman happened is because the United States decided, actually, Lehman is not a contingent liability of the United States government. We're going to let it fail. And then we saw what the consequences were. How much of what's going on in these banks that you were talking about, and also with regard to private debt in China, would you consider to be contingent uh, liabilities of the Chinese central government? Well, I mean, you could say the entire banking system is a contingent liability because pretty much all the banks are state-owned. Um, and um, so uh, in that sense, the you know, to the extent that the government or local governments are called upon to rescue banks, um, take on their liabilities as part of a merger or basically uh, hive off some of the assets into so-called asset management companies, which are also state agencies. I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is a contingent liability. Um, and obviously, because of the accounting regulations, which the Chinese government can, well, is in control of, I mean, they can, of course, they can extend and pretend and evergreen, you know, loans and liabilities, you know, for quite a long time. Um, but sooner or later, and I think, um, you know, one of the arch uh, proponents and gurus of the Chinese financial system is an uh, economist that I'm sure everybody's heard of called Michael Pettis, who uh, teaches at Peking University. 
Um, I mean, he's he always says, you know, somebody always has to pay for debt. You can't right. just doesn't exist. So whether the you know whether the government's balance sheet deteriorates as a consequence of uh, this, and you know taxes have to go up in the medium term, or whether we get you know just extended period of financial repression and low interest rates uh, for households, uh, or corporations basically have to end up. Uh, shouldering some of the burden of adjustment. I mean, eventually somebody pays for it, and um, and it's a constraint on on the capacity of the economy to grow. Um, and maybe in the end, you know, you get. Uh, I know it's not very fashionable to look at inflation anywhere, but I'm kind of one of the uh, band of brothers and sisters, really, that uh, think that actually we may be actually on the cusp of a kind of a, a not a when I say a new dawn of inflation. I don't want to be. Uh, overly alarmist, but you know, monetary financing plus supply choke points are kind of a good recipe for uh, a different kind of inflation environment in the next ten years. So it could be that in China too that this comes about as well. So, and you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself that the corollary of what you're saying is basically growth has to slow down over time. You know, if they want to get the situation under control from a debt perspective, and there's contingent liabilities, and you socialize the losses, however you do it as Michael Pettis would say, then that means growth slows. And if you look at 2008 to 2010, the United States and the rest of the world was very much dependent on Chinese growth to move forward. Uh, so if Chinese growth is slowing down and we have a pandemic that's happening right now uh, amidst what I would say is aggressive uh, monetary stimulus, wh where does that leave the rest of the world in terms of where it's going to get its growth from? Yeah, well, yeah, I've always been a bit uh, uh, slightly skeptical about this view that we, uh, I mean, it, it's one of those things, it's, it's become a little bit like, you know, uh, after the night, the sun shines, you know, so we know that sort of night follows day, day follows night, and the consensus has kind of grown up that we will become dependent on Chinese growth. But actually, uh, if you think about China that has for years been running current account surpluses, by definition, that dependence, I mean, China may have accounted for numerically a very high proportion of global growth, but to the extent that it runs current account surpluses rather than deficits, it's actually not a huge contributor to the dynamism of growth in the rest of the world. <clears throat> in that sense, you know, America's current account deficits actually do more, uh, you know, because other countries have the opportunity to import, uh, to export more than they import. So, uh, OK, that may be quibbling a little bit. But yes, I mean, I think the point is that if you if you've been a commodity producer, you know, if you an Australian coal producer or a Chilean, uh, you know, copper producer, or if you happen to be, you know, at the sort of the, the sharp end of supplying the Chinese economy with badly needed uh, products, you know, raw materials or intermediate goods or capital goods, then um, uh, if, you, if you're now looking at a China that's going to grow at, I don't know, like, should we say over the next 10 years by 3 or 4% per annum rather than 6 or 7%, that's, that's a very different environment. Uh, and the same goes for the uh, kind of supply chain operations in China where, you know, a lot of China's kind of um, uh, inputs of kind of semi-manufacturers that are assembled in China and then re-exported uh, basically will be uh, affected by just the lower kind of tone of growth in the world. I mean, we can already see this in the kind of world trade situation. So for 35 years, you know, world trade grew twice as fast as GDP up until about 2008. And then from 2008 until the pandemic, it was kind of more or less in line with GDP. Now we've got a situation where you know, it's not just that world trade is under pressure from, uh, you know, weaker economic growth and lower productivity, but also because trade restrictions, trade war, um, who knows where this is going, you know, once phase one is out of the way and so on. Um, so these things will make for a much more constrained kind of commercial environment. I mean, in a way, it, it sort of makes more appealing the idea about regional trade associations um, free trade associations like the successor to TPP, for example, which, interestingly enough, um, 
recently, Premier Li Keqiang uh, basically uh, said that um, um, it might be an interesting idea for China to inquire about joining um, the CPTPP, which would be rather, um, well, it would be interesting. I mean, I think it's very unlikely. Um, I think uh, the Japanese and Indians and Australians would have grave reservations about that. Um, but um, the fact is that uh, I think it it does make, it should, should give us co all cause um, to think about um, uh, whether this bilateral trade malarkey is really worth the candle. It's actually counterproductive, I think, in terms of, you know, global welfare. Right. Uh, you know, uh, the last thing I was going to ask you about, because I've given short shrift to the domestic economy, as you were saying that, I was thinking about jobs. If trade's going to go down, obviously, and the Chinese are thinking about jobs uh, in the future, you were saying that it's all about jobs, jobs, jobs in terms of where they're coming. What are the Chinese thinking in terms of you know, five-year plans, both in terms of jobs and in terms of trade and the political fight with the United States? How are they, what, what's the shift in terms of uh, where their emphasis is gonna be going forward given the political dynamics, the trade dynamics and the growth dynamics? Good question to ask, especially in 2020 because the the old five-year plan, which was from 2016 to 2020, obviously it's uh, over now, and the new one uh, will be drafted in this year. And um, uh, probably, I would say, sometime after the summer, summer, fall, sometime around then, we may see the first drafts of, um, of the 14th five-year plan, which will take us out to 2025. Now, I mean, we already know a little bit about uh, how China thinks about its future. So uh, many people will remember there were, used to be a lot of rhetoric about a, a strategy called Made in China 2025, which interestingly enough has not featured in any official rhetoric or you know, newspaper that I've seen or read in China uh, ever since the trade war began. I think because Beijing knows that it's like a red rag to an American bull to talk about Made in China 2025. But for those that don't know or don't remember, Made in China 2025 basically lists 10 sectors in which China wants advanced technology sectors, uh, including electric vehicles and um, uh, you know quantum computing and semiconductors and goodness knows what else, in which they want to have 70% market, Chinese companies, national champions, should have 70% market share. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, that, I think, uh, and that, that policy came out in 2015. And then two or three years later, when the Chinese got a little bit spooked by, um, I forget his name now, but it was the guy that basically beat uh, the computer at Go. Um, uh, I think he was a South Korean uh, champion or something. Um, they uh, basically made AI their, you know, they they joined AI to the MIC 25. Um, uh, so they want to be kind of a world leader or primary leader in uh, in AI as well. So we know that probably the uh, the next five year plan will make a huge song and dance about advanced technologies, about artificial intelligence, about 5G telecommunications. Green energy they care about. I mean, it's a little bit equivocal, to be honest. You know, China is often hailed as being the champion of you know climate change uh, policies and green energy, but actually, you know, they build a lot of coal-fired power stations in the Belt and Road countries, and when it suits them at home, they'll boost uh, coal production um, as they have done this year in order to basically meet targets and so on. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of. Uh, Mixed, you know, mixed marks, really. Um, but uh, but they do care about it. They know that it's a very, you know, sensitive thing for Chinese citizens. Uh, so we should expect to see more about that um, as well. Um, yeah, and I think that um, my guess is that the, uh, the, the 14th five-year plan will probably, whether it says so in so many words or not, I don't really know, but... I'm sure that the, the emphasis on policies of self-reliance will be quite strong, including for in particular semiconductors. I mean, semiconductors is like the oil 
of the 21st century, right? I mean, you can't do anything in technology without having sophisticated uh, high-end semiconductor capacity, which China has had a kind of a policy about for like 20 years, but they still haven't really made as much progress as I think they hoped they would have done uh, and are still reliant for about 40 or 45% of their uh, value uh, semiconductor imports from American, Korean, Taiwanese companies. So whether they can break that logjam in the next five years, you know, different science and tech people have different views about. Um, but they've been trying for 15 years or so and hasn't really worked for them properly yet. And some people think it might still be a struggle. But that's the kind of thing we should expect to see. We can do it ourselves. We don't need to rely on the Americans. Anymore. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I'm going to end it in here. Uh, I think that the interview cannot be over uh, without mentioning uh, Liverpool and the 30-year uh, uh, reign of, uh, of no championships. I know you're a big Liverpool supporter. What are your thoughts on Jurgen Klopp and uh, getting the championship back? Well, uh, it happened under the weirdest of circumstances because we um, we actually got the title um, when your team, Chelsea, uh, beat uh, the reigning champions, Manchester City. So we got the title <laughs> without the ball. But we uh, Liverpool did fantastically. You know, they were just light years ahead of Manchester City, the next team in the league this year. And, you know, with the pandemic and no crowds at uh, soccer stadiums, it's kind of strange and no, nobody could really get together to have, celebrate in, a, in the way that, you know, teams do um, but, and fans do. But uh, it's been great. And so I hope we'll do it again next year. Well, congratulations to you. We will hopefully challenge you next year. I think it'll be an exciting year. Uh, you know, Chelsea, uh, we, we have, Kai Havertz is someone that we're thinking about picking up. We need some defense. But I think that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be looking good under Lampard next year. Uh, I, I could talk to you all day about uh, soccer, but uh, <laughs> I, I really appreciate your thoughts on China and uh, hope to talk to you again very soon, George. Good to talk to you, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.